So like John said, my name is Josh Wall. Uh, for one more day, um, I'm a pastor here at Fifth. Um, no pressure, thanks a lot. Uh, just to acknowledge the reality, like, it's hard. I've written a fair number of sermons. I've come up with a fair number of things. And this was a hard one to write. Because what do you write for your last thing? What is the word that you want to give? And that went around and around in my head for a long time. And then I said, I don't know how to do that. I'm just going to write about and give a sermon about what's on my heart right now. So this is not a magnum opus. This is not the be all and end all. This is just the thing that God has been sharing with me that I want to share with you. Because at the end of the day, that's what a sermon is. It's not a lecture. It's not a presentation. It's not a performance. It is something for me as a guy who stands up and as someone who stands up and does this, it is something that has impacted me and changed me. And I want to share it with you with the hopes that God uses it to impact you. My words are nothing special. No preacher's words are anything special. What we do when we come to this place is we encounter Christ. We encounter a risen God who died for us to redeem and restore us. And that is the person we come to worship and that is the person we come to meet. So I invite you to hear these words of scripture this morning. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I want to begin with a question, and that's this. If you had to summarize, if you could summarize the work that you are called to do right now, over this season, over this period, over this time, if you were to call, summarize the thing that you are about, how would you do it? How would you describe it? I want to actually have you think about that. I want to encourage you to write it down either on the app or through notes. But if you were to summarize and think about what is the most essential thing that you are about right now, what would that be? Looking at the work and life of Jesus is an interesting thing. And while Jesus did many, many different things, he did one thing more than most. He did one thing continually and one thing undergirded everything that he did. And that is at the end of the day, he made disciples. He made people who say the things that he said and did the things that he did. And at the core of, of what Christianity should be about, in my opinion, it needs to have something to do with that. We're prophetic, yes. We, we provide needs for a world in need of things, yes. We provide comfort and aid and we advocate, yes. But at the end of the day, we are called to be disciples, to become people who have a life worth imitating and invite others along the journey with us. We see this show up 
uh, actually in uh, this verse this morning. This, this scripture was something that came to me while I was at a, at a conference last week. And so we we're talking about uh, basically multiplication and what happens. And, and this section from Luke came up. And I've heard this talked about from time to time. It shows up in sermons. It shows up in Bible studies. But I've never been entirely sure what to do with it. And honestly, if you think about it, it's kind of an intimidating thing. If you're to stick your life in the role of the disciples and to have that action and those words said over you, to go out, to take nothing, and to go basically proclaim the kingdom, what an intimidating thing. And so I want to explore what that looks like for us today and explore what that means for us as we live our our faith and our walk. In order to understand this, we need to understand the basic premise that is the Christian faith and the Christian life. And that's really, again, I want to make the argument, one, primarily, though not exclusively, of discipleship. To understand what a disciple is, though, first we need to understand what a rabbi is because disciples and rabbis go hand in hand, hand in glove. Right? A rabbi, especially in Jesus' day, was someone that would have been widely acclaimed and accredited by the people around him as having spiritual weight or authority. There was no uh, certificate. There was no test. There was no uh, appointment from upon high. Herod didn't make rabbis. Roman emperors didn't make rabbis. It was a collection of people that when they got together, they said, we like what you have to say. What you have to say has weight and importance. You're a rabbi. And so that's what a rabbi was, was a collective group decision that said, yeah, yeah, this person's got the right stuff. But rabbis, to become a rabbi, was actually a really uh, long and laborious process. It was also highly, highly coveted. It was something that was sought after again and again. Because in this time, in this era, the land is hard, death is near, food is scarce, And if you are not of a ruling or elite class, uh, to be a rabbi was to have a means, a way to get somewhere. It it created a middle-class opportunity when you were living in poverty. And so to become a rabbi was a fairly high bar. To become a rabbi, you actually had to start normally at the age of six or seven is what happened. And so to become a rabbi, first you had to become a disciple. And a disciple is someone who follows a rabbi. To become a disciple started at the age of six or seven. And at the age of normally about seven, you would have to memorize scripture. The Bible at the time was incredibly expensive to produce, right? To make one of these things could cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. So they were not sitting around. You did not have, I have, I believe, probably about 10 to 15 different Bibles and translations sitting in my office. You probably have a couple at home. Maybe you've never read it, but you've got one. Someone gave it to you. We give them out in hospitals and hotels, right? Bibles are cheap nowadays. Back in the day, it was really expensive. And so what they did is religious leaders and teachers at the time, they would memorize it. They would memorize the whole thing. They would memorize chunks. And so by the age of seven, we're going to do a test. Raise your hand if you're about seven. I know my boy Sam is in here and he's about seven. So if you are seven, in order to become a rabbi, you would have memorized the entire first book of the Bible, the entire book of Genesis. You would have to know the whole thing inside and out. And someone could say, tell us this one, and you could say that verse. Tell us this chapter, and you would say that chapter. You would have to memorize the whole thing. And people did this, again, because it created, both because they felt God was in it, and it created a means out of poverty. So they would memorize 
the book of Genesis by the age of about seven. By the age of 10, they would memorize the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. By the age of 13, they would have memorized the entire Old Testament. Along with that, they would have learned debates and theology. They would have learned how to do the things that a rabbi is supposed to know how to do. And along the way, as you can imagine, this is an elite program, and along the way, you get cut and cut and cut and cut. If you don't make the standard, you're out. If you don't make the standard, you're out. And so what started out with everybody trying ended up with very few people who made it to the final round. And once you made it to the final round, you still weren't done. Once you made it to the final round, now you were just open and eligible. You were able to be drafted as someone's disciple. And the, the rabbis would come through these rabbinical schools, these yeshivas, and rabbis would come through and they would say like, I like what you and I like you and you come follow me and you come follow me and you come follow me. And so what would start with this big broad road of people that wanted to become rabbis historically in the ancient world because it provided security, you did God's work. It provided a life of comfort and means. Progressively got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as it went. Jesus is interesting in this section because he's talking to his disciples. And it starts, this section really starts with the 12, right? Because his disciples were unlike everyone else's disciples. We have the stories of how his disciples became his disciples, and they were not like that. They didn't come through yeshivas and rabbinical schools. Jesus didn't pick them out of the best and the brightest. Jesus went to the leftovers who had already been cut. Jesus went to those that had no right or authority and said, you, put down your nets and come with me. You, come with me. Did you ever wonder why the disciples left as quick as what they did? Maybe it was because Jesus was charismatic. I think that's part. But part of it is they were all rejects who had been disqualified. And God turns to them and says, you have a place with me and with us. The story begins with the 12 and it talks about who the disciples were because they are these people who are redeemed into a relationship with Christ. And we talk about that, but, but the rabbis had a phrase that I think is a better imagery of it. What it meant to be a disciple is that you were someone who followed along your rabbi close. You followed so close that the phrase is, uh, the blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. When your rabbi walked, you walked. When your rabbi sat, you sat. When your rabbi ate, you ate. When he told a joke, you'd tell a joke. The point was that you were becoming like your rabbi in every way, shape, or form in order that you may someday carry on their legacy, carry on their weight and importance. The section on, uh, on Luke is really starts with who the disciples are in order to understand it. Because they are disciples who are trying to emulate their rabbi as best they can. But it's not just that. We need to understand who they are, but we also need to remember what the disciples were doing. Right? In the same way that they're being sent out with power and authority, they're also very intentionally being shaped to be like Jesus. They're intentionally being shaped to be someone who does what he does and say what he says. 
and throughout scripture. This is the thing that I think if we look at what Jesus does and what the scriptures tell us Jesus does, again and again, this is what he invites people to. Jesus' mission at the end of the day was about people. Jesus prioritized people and the outsiders and the leftovers, the rejected and the refugees. Jesus prioritized who to engage with rather than what to do. Jesus picked a who over a what time and time again. And then invites them in to a relationship and says, come be like me, come imitate me and that you may be sent out in power and authority. And I want to take a, a time out in a minute here uh, because this looks different than what we expect broadly. If you look at the state of American Christianity and you talk about the things that we do, if you look at the church writ large in the context we find ourselves, most, if not the majority of those, are not an intentional discipleship process where we are becoming more like Jesus step by step and day by day. We're not advancing the kingdom and living into that description that Paul laid out, which is great and Willard stuff is awesome. We're often at a place where we're preserving things. More often we're about preserving culture or we're preserving power or we're preserving comfort. And all three of those things aren't bad on their own, right? There's times when we have cultures that that we should hold on to. This is how we do it here. This is who we are. This is part of the legacy that makes up this place. Or we preserve power because there are things that we should advocate for and fight for. There are those things in this world. And there's times when you are beat up and bruised up and you are barely making it through the day. And church at its best at this time can be a place of comfort and rest and a refuge. But the challenge for all these things and for the American church writ large is that we tend to sit back and have a posture that leans back instead of in. And we reside in those places of culture, power, and comfort. And we make a temporary phase of what should be a temporary phase in our lives into an ultimate mission. Churches have a tendency in the American church, the wealthy American church, has a tendency to make what we've always done what we will always do. We stop being prophetic. We stop investing in people. And we just reside back. To be honest, I've been... uh, For a brief while, I was in the ordination process with the Episcopal Church. Um, So I have this weird, mildly distant relationship with them where I see them do things and I'm like, oh, I wonder what they're up to. And to be honest, not to throw any shade, but the Episcopal Church struggles with these things, right? And I say this, I visited a friend of mine a little bit ago and a big, gorgeous old church. And he struggles because his church struggles with these things with having power, with being, this is the place where the things happen and being a place of comfort. And the same time, if you look at the numbers of the Episcopal Church, their most healthy diocese, the one that has grown the most, shrank by 10% in the last 10 years. The unhealthy one shrank by 30%. The call of the church cannot be culture and power and comfort. It has to be mission. It has to be investing in people if we're to live into any kind of mandate that Christ has put before us. 
turning back to the scriptures, what's interesting about Luke 9, and I just want to read that again because I like it. When Jesus called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. And if people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they sent them out from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. This is a sense of mission. What's funny about this whole progression, though, is that chapter 9 is actually part of a larger progression looking both backwards and forwards. In chapter 8, it's Jesus who's doing all this work, right? In chapter 8, if you wanted to break it down, 8, 1 through 25, Jesus is teaching and he's explaining and he's talking about what the kingdom of God is and he's giving parables and allusions and he's giving people rest in places of comfort and theological ideas and, and places to reside underneath. And then in 26 through 55, he's healing people. He's uh, dealing with people who are possessed by demons and the woman who, who is continually bleeding. He's bringing hope and physical restoration to people. But then in chapter 9, it turns. In chapter 8, it's Jesus who does it. In chapter 9, he turns to his disciples. He turns to the 12, to these kids who are probably teenagers And he says, hey, you've been seeing me do this. You go do this now. Take no money. Take no security. Engage in the mission that God has put before you. Right? So we go from one to we go to 12. And then, that actually actually continues the whole time, by the way, too. If we look at it, Jesus sends them out and they come back. And then starting again in verse 10, The scriptures say this, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with them and withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him there. He welcomed them there and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowds away so they can go get something from the surrounding villages and the countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And Jesus turns to them and says, you give them something to eat. Jesus is going as part of a progression of going, I'm doing the work to you do the work. And then they do. And then we have the miracle of the loaves and the fishes and God's people are empowered and God's people are challenged and God's people are sent out with authority. So in verse chapter 8, Jesus does the work. In chapter 9, the apostles do the work. And then in chapter 10, Jesus expands the circle out more. And it says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was to go. He told them this, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. As the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to go and send workers into his harvest. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. Jesus' work, Jesus' essential mission was to take the work that he was doing, multiply it in others, and send them out. Jesus' work, his essential work, is to establish the church more than to accomplish the work and the mission of the church. Jesus' goal is not to establish the work of God, but to make us into the people of God. This is what we see if you ever think about it. We often hold Jesus up in many ways, and this is reverential and good and a right thing, right? 
but Jesus is the one who does everything. And then there are verses like in, in John 14 when he says to us, go and you will do greater things than I. Jesus did not come to accomplish everything. Jesus came to create and birth the church. And out of us, out of you and me and your parents and grandparents and your kids and whoever God calls, the kingdom of God will come. Jesus is the head and Jesus establishes it all true. But the work of the church is to be a sending place. The work of the church is to be an empowering place where what we do does not focus on the activities and the tasks before us, but it focuses on the communities and the people beyond us. Because the reality, my friends, whether we are aware of it or not, is that we are all called to something. And the question is what? And really, the question is who? Kenneth Feinberg, uh, you may or may not know his name, but Kenneth Feinberg is the, he's a lawyer. He's, he's from New York. You've probably heard his voice or seen his picture on TV. He was the one who distributed, after 9-11, he distributed the Victims' Compensation Fund. After the BP disaster down in the Gulf of Mexico, he was the one who figured out how much everybody should get and what feels fair. And what is fair for you and fair for you and how do people, how do we decide what is fair? And that's, that's Feinberg's work. I was listening to a podcast a bit ago about not real, a little bit about Feinberg, but generally about other things. And what was interesting is, is he was just someone was asking and talking and asking questions. And Feinberg is just kind of riffing and responding. And the guy goes, you don't, you don't get paid for any of this, do you? And Feinberg goes, no, no, I don't receive a nickel. I don't receive a dime for this work that takes hours upon hours. In his process, he would listen, and he would listen to grieving widows and spouses and children, and he would hear their lament, and he would hear their story, and he would hear of lives lost and destroyed, hours after hours. And the interviewer goes, you don't get paid. He's like, no, I don't get, don't get a dime. Why is that? He said, it's the thing I feel like I need to do. I feel like it's what I'm supposed to do at this moment. When we talk about issues of what we are called to do, calling in Christian theology has this rich vocabulary, but at its core, it's that. What is the thing you're supposed to do? And God, before each of us, is calling us to something. This is true if you're 10, it's true if you're 40, it's true if you're 90. God is calling you to something. And often we think of that something as the task. We think of that something as a what. But when we look at the life of Jesus, that calling might be a task. But more often, it is a who. It could be that your life's greatest gift, your life's greatest work is not a what, but a who. Because we are normally called to people and people around us. Maybe you're in school and there is a friend. Maybe you're in school and there is a kid who sits by themselves and eats lunch alone. Maybe you're at work and the same thing happens. 
Maybe you're at work and you see the people around you who are barely holding it together and they need help and they need hope. Maybe you have little kids at home and those are your who. Maybe you have a neighbor across the fence or across the street. Friends, the the call in the kingdom of God is not to some task or project. It's not to a Wednesday night program. It's not to a Bible study. The call is to invite people into your life, to have a life worth imitating first and then invite them in so that they can experience and encounter the love of Jesus in a radical and life-changing way. Not abstract, not removed. And while there is hope for places far away, most of the who's around us Most of the who's that we're called to are the people that we know their name, we know their kids, we know their parents, we know their story. We exist as a church because our fathers and mothers, our ancestors in the faith were called to who's. The early Christians were called to the communities around them to be a radically different community And the faith spread. It spread throughout Europe. It spread throughout the world. People started new churches and new manifestations of hope occurred. Not in some abstract way, but because I have a friend who needs some hope. Because I have a friend, Jan, who needs something. And I want to help deliver that. This church exists because 134 years ago, people felt like there was a who they needed to reach and impact and engage with. And this church will exist And you and your life will exist because we are called at the end of the day to a who. Not abstract, not removed. And the question before us in this season, in this time, in a new fall, in a new launch, who and where are you called? To be honest, it's a hard, it's hard to give a last sermon. And I wish there was many things I could say and I've probably said more than what I needed to here. It is weird to leave and it's joyful to leave and it's hard to leave. But what I want to say more than anything else is that I feel sent out of here and I pray that you are sent out of here. That if we are the people that we proclaim ourselves to be, we are ascending people and that is a two-way street, my friends. That we are all sent to a place and to a who. Will you pray with me? God of grace and God of mercy, meet us where we are. In new seasons and chapters, whether it is a semester or a birth or a new job or a new location, God, send us out to people. Build your kingdom here. Call us to where we need to be. Give us strength and mercy for the hard days and give us comfort for the days we need that. 
God, may we be ascending people of others and ourselves to see your kingdom thrive, to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.